All right, good morning, everybody. What a great day. Uh, today, after second service, we'll be out at Mazingo for the baptism. Just a reminder, um, taco truck shows up and is probably getting set up right now. Our guys are going to go out and set up during second service and get signs out there for us. We'll be at the host lion's shelter. That's where the taco truck will be. St. Joe brings her truck up. That's free. Just enjoy your all different kinds that they make. And then uh, we also got the point uh, shelter only so that we could use all that parking in between the two shelters. So you'll have a place to park there. So uh, join us for that. Now, I haven't had anybody really tell me they want to be baptized. So if I'm standing out there in the water and I don't have anybody and it's been a while, I'm going to, I'm going to give a few of you a nod and you're going to walk out and get baptized and that'll, that'll, We'll just make sure you're saved is what we're going to do there. Now, if you want to be baptized, we'd love to do that. If you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and that's never happened in your life, and you want to make that public profession of faith, we'd love to do that today as well. So that's today after second service, 1 o'clock is what we'll do there. So today we'll be in Psalms 137, 38, and 39. Lord willing, we'll get through all three of these. Wonderful. Just the songs today talking about God's love. Um, really, uh, really emphasized in these psalms as the psalmists understand and, and begin to realize how much um, he's loved and how much we're known by God, I think was the big thing for me as I'm going through these psalms, how much God knows about us. And of course, the, the obvious thing is then we submit to him. He knows everything about us. He's done everything. He made us. And all those attributes that he has, uh, how could you not want to submit yourself to someone so great. Um, sometimes I watch little debates on YouTube, which I, I really don't like debates. It's always frustrating to watch two guys in podiums, you know, an atheist versus a Christian and all. And, and it's okay, but I'm always frustrated because I'm like, oh man, you missed that. You should have said that, you know, right there. And, and you know, in the moment, that's pretty hard to come up with some answers to a question you're hearing for the first time, you know, so I understand it, but I'm like, oh, oh, oh. well, they were comparing religions and, and uh, why is Christianity the best and, and all, and why is it, why does it make point? And it's logical is the idea. And he got a little, he, he understood that. And I think the Christian shared that pretty well, that it's logical. Well, that's what the psalmist gets to today. It, if God knows everything and made everything, and we understand that about him, it's the logical conclusion is to submit to him. It's illogical to not. And so I, I appreciate that. Not that I want to come to God on logic, of course. Um, I want to know that he loves me, and I want, to, I want to feel that and understand that and experience that from him. And then I want to give that love back to him. Um, I want that kind of relationship. I don't want a duty-bound relationship with him, but... It does help when you realize you, there really isn't any other options, and he's the best option, and he's made himself the best option. I mean, that's what we always ask God for direction in our lives. God, make the door wide open, but if he makes it really a great wide open door too, that's even easier, you know? He's the greatest God. Of, of all the religions that try to describe the creator, um, as Jesus expressed his image here on earth um, and became God come in the flesh and walk the walk, 
we realize how amazing our God really is. A, a heavenly father who created everything that's humble is, is, is odd. It's strange to think of him that way. He's humble. On the way into church today, I have deep thoughts. It seems like for me anyway, they're deep. And I, I was thinking about the, the disciples at the table when there were, every one of them was waiting for someone else to wash their feet. You know, and I know the story, and we all know the story, that Jesus humbled himself and wrapped himself in a loincloth and began to wash the feet. And what, you, what I'm doing for you now, you don't understand, but you will. And, and, you know, least is the greatest. We understand that. But I wanted to back up in my mind to where they were all sitting around the table with filthy, irritating, dry, gross feet. You know what it's like after mowing and you want to take a shower? That's what they all felt like. But nobody's going to do it because the person who does it is the least. And they were so adamant about not being the least. They were so willing to be uncomfortable and filthy and let everybody else be that way too. I will not be the least. Certainly John will get up. We've, I keep looking at him like, John, you know, the basin's right over there, you know. Or Peter, I know you say, but you could wash feet too, you know. Why is everybody looking at me, the other guy would say. Why am I the guy that's supposed to be washing the feet? And I'm just running through this in my mind on the way here. And finally, Jesus gets up and, and washes everybody's feet because it's, it's natural to him. It wasn't unusual for him. It was natural. It was a natural thing for our God to want to wash the disciples' feet. He didn't think anything of it. Sometimes I get the idea that he's like, fine, I'll do it. That's not how it went. Glad to do it. Glad to make sure you're comfortable. I, who else would do it is what he was thinking why would anybody else get up and wash the feet other than me, you know? And that's our God. And that's how much he loves us. And so as we go through these psalms, it's beautiful to see the psalmist, a person, a human, kind of get it, you know, and start to understand who it is that we're worshiping. Verse 1 of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung up our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested myrrh or mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You understand the cruelty of that, right? We're taking you captive and we're going to learn later on that they had just recently, because how do you get an entire nation to follow you? into captivity, to take you out of their homeland, to stop fighting and to carry you into Babylon, except something horrific had to happen. And I don't mean to bring that into this, but later on, he's going to talk about how I can't wait for your little ones to be dashed on the rocks as, as our enemies, Israel would say. So that means that's what they just did to the nation of Israel, dashed the little ones on the rocks to get them moving, to get them their mind and, and spirit broken to where they'll follow them. And on their way out, they say, hey, sing a song about Zion. Sing about how lovely this place is. And the psalmist is really feeling that. You know, you want us to sing a happy song, like a, a sea chanty to keep us moving forward, a work song, you know, ho, ho, you know. I can't do that. Those who asked us to do that as we wept, over our children, over the loss of our land, over the, over the captivity that we're going into, and you want us to sing songs of Zion, we can't. Now, there's two reasons they can't. 
One is because it's not appropriate, right? Who sings happy songs during sorrowful times. But it's at this moment they realize why they're going into captivity. Does everybody know why they're going into Babylon? It isn't that they just got conquered and God was weak on their behalf. It said this is something they chose. For decades they've been walking away from the Lord and not doing as well and counting him as someone who's, eh, you know, sort of a part of their life, sort of something they had to do, something that was over there but not in their heart or in their life. They began to do wicked things. They began to become more and more worldly. They looked just like Babylon by the time they were led captive. In fact, they were, in a sense, dashing their own children on the rocks before the Babylonians came, long before they came. So how can I sing a song about Zion, which is a place where God's eye is, where his love is, where he set his heart upon, a place where he's going to return to? How can I sing about that, knowing that I have counted it as dung in my life? You know, to use biblical phraseology, it's dung. There was no respect and no honor for what God had given them. There was no respect or honor for what God had blessed them with and how he provided for them. And they know why they're going into Babylon. Sing us a song. No, we're going to hang our harps up here. And when we come back, maybe they'll still be hanging there. And that's where I'll play. That's where the joy is, you know. That's where my love is. That's where my life is. Verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Hmm. That was one of the things I put out on the group chat. Somebody have questions about the group chat that we have as a church. Those are people that serve here at Calvary Chapel. We have a, a chat to communicate with one another about certain areas. So if you're not a part of the group chat, it's not, it's not that we are excluding you from Calvary. It's that this is just meant for those who clean, those who do kitchen duty, those who do greeting, those kind of things, and that's where we communicate. So once in a while, I'll put out like a little, oh, devotional maybe you'd call it, you know, for people to read. And that was one of the things that struck my heart. Is it, you know, when Jesus said to Peter, do you love me more than these? And we don't know what these are. It could have been fish. It could have been the boats. It could have been the other disciples. We don't know which it is. And he doesn't tell us, which is fine. It, it can be all three. I think that applies here. Do I, do I exalt my place with God, Jerusalem, we call it, that perfect will of God, or do I exalt it above all the other joys in my life? Because there's nothing wrong with having the other joys in your life. Your wife and your husband or your husband can be a joy. Your kids can be a joy. There's nothing wrong with not, you know, with being joyful about other things. You know, I'm looking forward to the taco truck, you know. I'm looking forward to hanging out with brothers and sisters from another fellowship in the beach. And I know it's going to be sandy. I'll need to take a shower and all that. But it's worth it. You know, it's, there's joy ahead of us today. And I'm looking forward to the baptisms, of course. And after the taco, taco truck. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> That's the important part, isn't it? I'm, I have joy over those things. But is my, is my existence in the perfect will of God my chief joy? Is it the most important thing to me? You know? This song or this uh, part of this psalm right here is in a modern day song. And I say modern. It's within the last 15 years it was written by um, a, a, a Hasidic Jew who is a pop 
singer, okay? It's really fun to watch him. Matisiahu, I can't pronounce it. Do you know how to pronounce that? Matisiahu, yeah. And, and he sings this, right? And if my, li- if my right hand forgets, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. It's that ingrained, even to this day, from this psalm all the way up to about a decade ago, that's still the devout Jew's heart about Jerusalem. It is the heart of Israel. It's the heart. It's everything. In fact, Jews all over the world, we know from Scripture, are coming back into the land, first of all, but to Jerusalem specifically. That's, that's it, you know. To think that we can divide up Jerusalem and everybody's going to be happy is, is, is humorous. It is theirs, and they know it, and it is their heart, and I will not have a divided heart, you know. And so even here they sing this, and to this day the Hasidic Jew still sings it this way. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem. Now we don't have those feelings towards Jerusalem necessarily as Gentiles. We have feelings like that that are similar maybe to our country, but really not nearly as deep as what they have towards Jerusalem. And so I spiritualized the text a little bit, that that Jerusalem is the heart of God. It's the place. If I ever forget the heart of God and what his plan is for my life, I pray that my right hand will forget what it's supposed to do. If I stop exalting the Lord in my life, in everything that I do, I pray that that my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. Does that make sense? Does that help us a little bit? It's that important to them. Verse 7, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the ones or the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes the, and dashes your little ones against the rock. <laughs> We don't have any worship songs like that, do we? Hmm. Seems rough, and I get it. If you just saw your little ones dashed on the rocks, that'd probably be the song that you would write as well. It would be hard not to feel that way. I think we feel uncomfortable about those last two verses, and maybe you don't. Great. (laughs) But because we're in an age of grace. This is written in the Old Testament, and, and eventually Revelation comes, which is the end of the age of grace. And there's no more grace after that. And so there's judgment that takes place in Revelation 19. And so there's judgment before the cross, and there's judgment after the second coming of Christ. And so that's where this song is meant to be sung in those places. We live in an age of grace where we, we pray for our enemies, and we, and, we, and we minister to our enemies, and we want our enemies to get saved, even to, at, our, at our loss, at our expense. We want them to know the Lord. And so to sing a song like that, you don't wish anyone's little ones to be dashed on the rocks. And that's okay to be uncomfortable with that thought. But the psalmist here saying, you want us to sing songs, you want to take us into captivity. The enemies of God are not my friends. They understood that. The enemies of God are those to be, if I'm on his side, my enemies as well. And, and here's the fight that we fight now, even in this age of grace, if you want to take this psalm into the age of grace now where we live, where we exist. The enemies of God are still the enemies of God to us as Christians. But my warfare against them is different. 
I want to conquer that ground. I'm not content to let them live and, and die that way. We make war with them through prayer, through sharing the gospel with them, through heaping coals of fire on their head that, that the love might cause them to feel conviction in their heart and life. You know, That's the warfare we wage against them, but we're not content to let Satan have that ground. That's conquerable ground as long as they're alive. That's how I see it. That's how we should all see it. So that's the heart of the psalmist there. Psalm 138, verse 1. I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods, little G's. I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above your name. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. That's where we get the the phrase, you've magnified your word above my name. That's how, where they quote it from in the New Testament. You just read it in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel always had a struggle with that. They had the name of God, so much so that they had such reverence for it that they wouldn't even write it or let you pronounce it. They left the vowels out when they would write it down in the scriptures because no one was worthy from their own lips to say the name of God. That was that important to them. And I respect that. Except that became the most important thing to them and not the character of God. The, the name was all that mattered. We carry the name, but we don't have necessarily the character of God, which is his word. His word describes who he is, what he's like, what he doesn't like, who he wants us to be, who he is. We can do the same thing with the word Christian. It's a name you earn. You don't earn your way to heaven. Of course not. That's, I'm not talking about salvation. The name Christian was a derogatory term used in the New Testament to, to describe followers of Jesus. You're a little Christian. You're a Christian. You're a little Christ. Everywhere you go, you're a little Christ. See, that's a name you earn. I could call myself a Christian, but I, have I earned it? Am I a little Christ wherever I go? Am I a little Savior? Am I a little all of that wherever I go? Am I a little bit of Jesus in someone's life? He's magnified his character, his word, above his name. So I don't want to just carry the name Christian. I want to be. I want to be that. And he knows that. The psalmist David, as he goes through this, he's always understood that. David, from, the, from when he was a shepherd all the way till he was a sort of fallen king, in a sense, He's always understood that the character of God was far more important than just having the name. Just the fact that I am a Jew or of the tribe that I'm from or, uh, uh, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are my fathers. He's always known that's, that was a cop-out, you know. David had the heart of God. David was a man after God's own heart as described in Scripture. Not after his name. I want to walk around and just boast that I'm God's son. I want to... I want people to recognize it, you know. That, I don't know who that guy is, but he must be a, a son of God or a daughter of God, you know. You made me bold with strength in my soul, he says in verse 3. And I, I underline that because that spoke to my heart because he's truly for us. You talk about, that's a modern day thing that we're going through right now, and it's emphasized a lot in the church is to remove toxicity from your life and to add you know, surround yourself with people. And, you know, that's the, huge, that's the mantra now. 
And I've always, I, I struggle with that for different reasons, but we don't need to get into that this morning. If you do want to do that, and that is where you are, and those are the books you're reading about removing toxic people from your life and adding to your life people that enrich you and build you up, well, this is the verse that you should underline because that's what God does. He's truly the only one that will consistently day in and day out be the one to give you boldness and strength for your soul. He's the one. He's the positive influence that you've been looking for. He's the one that's going to elevate you above and not keep sinking you down or bringing you down as the books are written today. He is not toxic at all. He's a beautiful person who's always looking out for your best interests and is always there to serve you. As strange as that sounds to say, you know. When I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Verse 4, all the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord. When they hear the words of your mouth, yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly. But the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Now, he's segueing into Psalm 139 when he describes that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God is the one who makes us, and the psalmist here, David, understands that he'll be the one to complete the work that he's begun in us. We're not done being made. You know, knitting together in the mother's womb is step one. Then there's birth, and then we're still growing, you know. And some of us are in entropy. We understand that we're decaying right in front of our very eyes. Every morning we look up and say, a little saggier today, you know. <laughs> But he's still making us, isn't he? Even as us old folks or older folks, he's still creating in us a clean heart. He's still renewing a steadfast spirit in us and making us the people he wants us to be, conforming us into his image still. He's still doing it. The writer here knows that. David knows that. He knows this. He's recognized this about God because David's been lowly and God noticed him there. See, David was the shepherd boy, the the youngest in the family, the one who is left out of the picking for king, you know. You have any more sons, Jesse? I've got the little guy. He's out there watching the sheep. We thought that'd be a good job for him while you pick the, you know, the older boys. Ah, we'll bring him in because I'm not leaving until I see him. Yeah, this is the kid. And David was fine out with the sheep, you know. Well, I say that, I guess I don't know whether he's fine out the sheep or not. Maybe as a young kid, he's like, really? We get a visitor like once every six months. It's a prophet and I've got to be out in the sheep while you guys have dinner. I don't know if that's fair. I bet he didn't say that though. I bet he was fine. Like, sweet. What a responsibility. I get to take care of everybody's sheep and goats while you guys are in there having dinner. Okay, I'll do that. And because he had that heart and willing to serve He was the one chosen. David understands what it means to be chosen as a lowly person. An unexpected person. He knows the proud from afar, though. I take those things to heart when I read that. When I'm in my prideful state, which I am, I'm not going to tell you how often, 
That's when I'm the farthest from God. When I'm humble and lowly, that's when I'm closest to him. That's when I'm closest to his character. That's when I'm closest to the, to the God who thought nothing of wrapping himself in a loincloth and washing our feet. That's when I'm closest. And that's where I want to be. When I feel distant from God, that's the first thing I check. Where's your pride? Where's your boasting? What would what you talk about yesterday? What did you, how did you feel yesterday that you feel so distant from God today? You know, and it doesn't take me very long to trace it back to where it started. He loves the lowly. He identifies with them. He's comfortable around the lowly. He's looking for servants. I want you twelve guys that are to follow me around for three and a half years. I don't want to feel distant from you across from the fire when we're cooking fish. I want us to all be of the same mind when we're talking about, oh, wasn't that great when we were able to feed the 5,000? Wasn't that amazing? I was so tired, but it's a good tired, isn't it? You know, And not like, oh, is there, is there, did we get everybody? Go home. You know, Jesus didn't understand that. And that's where the distance was between them. That's too much serving. I've served enough. I, I met my quota for the day. I mean, somebody else can do this kind of thing. He knows that. David understands that. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, he says, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Hmm. There's different kind of enemies, you know, when he talks about, you know, protecting me from the enemies, protecting me from um, those who are trying to stop me. I, we have two different types. The two different types of enemies are ones that I, I bring on myself. They're going into Babylon. Babylon is their enemy for a reason. It's something they chose, actually. but something they brought into their own lives. And there's the other kind of enemy which is the enemies of the cross, those who are counter to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Those are the enemies that God deals with and is strong on our behalf. I will be able to preach the gospel and teach this Bible as long as he wants me to. You know, we, we always want, oh, it's coming. You know, it's going to be time when it's going to be illegal to say those things. It'll be called hate speech. I don't really concern myself with those things because I'll be able to say whatever they think is hate speech, but it's biblical as long as God wants me to. It won't make any difference. I don't have to be careful. I don't have to fight. I mean, I'm going to fight for free speech. I always will, but um, I don't have to be worried about it. I know that this psalm is true when it comes to these things. When it comes to enemies of the cross in my life, enemies to me walking in God's character, God will take care of those enemies. The enemies I need to worry about are the enemies that I bring into my life. The Babylons, the Egypts, those kind of things. The things where I align myself with the world and put myself in a funny place. The enemy is, the world, the same thing, is never your friend. You, you may have common goals sometimes with the world. And for that moment, it feels like you're maybe an ally because you're reaching a common goal, but it, it will turn and eat you alive. It is never, ever your friend, ever. 
And he knows that. And, and so the idea is God's going to be strong on my behalf as I walk with him. And that's where I stay because I can't trust the world. I can't trust Egypt. Thank you for Goshen. Thank you for giving us this wonderful land and everything. For now, during the famine, this seems like a great partnership. And it was. It was okay. But there must have been a time when God says, it's time to get out of there now. Okay? That time is over with. And they didn't go. Because a couple hundred years later, they find themselves completely enslaved to this once ally. We have to be very careful about being an ally with this world. Babylon, I don't know how this all happened. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a story behind it. There was some getting along. There were some treaties. There was some, we'll just agree not to fight kind of thing. And God never gave them authority to make those kind of treaties, ever. Nor is he with us as Christians. I can never make a treaty with sin. I'm not allowed to do that. Our final psalm, Psalm 139. It's a longer one. David writing it again, preparing us with Psalm 138 about how we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. And there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, oh Lord, you know it altogether. You know these things. Now, David, knowing that, that God knows what he's thinking and knows what he's about to say, doesn't stop him from writing the psalm does it? You know, he still writes the psalm, even though God knew he was going to write the psalm. We go through those gymnastics in our minds, don't we? Well, I was going to pray that, but you kind of already knew that, didn't you? So I'm not going to pray that. No, pray it. Follow through with the words. Pray it. He's going to take us through a, a bunch of things that show us how how closely we're doing. First of all, he knows my path. He knows my existence. He knows where I lie down. He knows where I walk. He knows my thoughts. Now, that's a distinction we need to make between Satan and God. Because when we talk about spiritual warfare, and I don't mean to jump off too far, a little, this is a little springboardy, but Satan doesn't know your thoughts. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. God is. Satan is not God's equal. It's, well, this doesn't even do it justice, you know. Jesus is not Satan's equal. It doesn't do it justice. I can't put them far enough apart. Satan is nothing but a created being who observes our behavior. He puts bait out to see what works. And whatever you bite on, then that's the bait. He's like a fly fisherman, you know? You ever see those fly fishermen with their hats on? And they've got all these different things on there. Maybe they have a little thing. Those are all the different things. And the first thing they do, you see them in the movies, they go, they kill the insect, they see what's out. Oh, that's what they're eating on. And so they find a fly that matches that insect. They put it on there, and all of a sudden, they're catching all the fish they want. They don't know. Satan doesn't know what you'll bite at until you bite. And they, oh, that's the stumbling block. And then he goes for it. God, on the other hand, knows our thoughts. When I pray silently, God hears every single word. Satan doesn't hear any of it. Only God. Be very careful about our doctrine when it comes to these things. We give Satan way too much authority and credit. God knows my thoughts afar off. God comprehends my path and where I sleep and lie down. He knows the sleepless nights you have. He knows the difficulties and the, the questions and the hardships that you're going through. He knows all those things. He does. 
He's acquainted with those things. And David just acknowledges that. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I can't hide anything from God. And still know that he loves me. And still know that his thoughts towards me are if they were counted as the sand of the sea, which we're about to read. That tells me something about him and and my relationship with him. How he feels about me. Why he feels what he feels about me. is very important to me. If I think that it's conditional, if I think that it's because I'm such a great person and he spotted me and decided to set his love upon me because I just like J.D.'s personality, you know. Charming, aren't I? I joke around with Jenny about that a lot. (laughs) What's not to love, right? That's not why God loves me. That's not why he loves you. I mean, he loves you because he made you, and he loves you because you're his child and because you're his daughter or son. He loves you because of all those reasons, but he knows who you're supposed to be. He knows that your current behavior is not what he created you to act like. He knows that you're off right now in many different ways, but that's not what he sees. He loves what he wants to conform you into. He loves what you were made to be, what you were designed to be. That's what he loves. That's what he's looking for. And he's going to love you all the way through, you know. And as long as you're willing to listen and draw close to him and let him be your teacher and guide, he'll do that in your life. Because that's his goal, to make you just like Jesus. David understands that. God, you're, you're there. Even, even with Bathsheba and Uriah, which is a really tough one. That's really hard to read. I like the Goliath one, and I like the, I like the story we just told about him watching sheep while his brothers were being picked to be king. I like those stories because, I guess because that's what I want to be. But more often than not, I'm more like the David with Bathsheba and Uriah. Not that that's happened. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery with someone else's wife, you know. But that's the part that David, I think, is it's, it's a, a difficult thing for him is God loves me then too. I mean, his love for me doesn't change between that day and the day I was writing psalms, songs, watching sheep by myself as a teenage boy, innocent of all that blood, hadn't killed a Philistine yet, you know, practiced on some wolves and lions and stuff, but up to that point hadn't touched a person. God loves both. All the way through, just loves David. And David understands that. It's beautiful. Verse 5, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? That's where we get the word hedge. I'm going to pray a hedge of protection around you. We joke around about that. What's, how about a wall? You know, Why a hedge? You know? Well, a hedge is a deterrent, obviously. There's a couple of scriptures I wanted to share with you about that. It's kind of humorous, I think. In Job chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the Lord. I mean, there is so much to learn from that, these two verses we just covered. The hedge of protection around you allows you an environment to be blessed by God. It allows the enemy to be kept away while you flourish in the presence of the Lord. Only authorized people are within that hedge. I'll give you another scripture. It's in Matthew 21, 33. Here another parable, Jesus said, there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. He prepared this place for his vines to flourish and bear fruit, put a hedge around it, and only authorized personnel were allowed in. And it did. And it did. We won't get into the wicked vine dressers and all that. That's a whole other story. But that's what the hedge is designed for. When David says, you built a hedge around me. We, we wonder, how come Babylon got brought into captivity? That's because they didn't want the hedge anymore. The Lord's protection around their life. They didn't keep themselves in there. To them, the hedge became a, a prison instead of a protection. I remember watching a movie a long time ago. It was a, oh, probably shouldn't even bring it up because I don't even remember all of it. But anyway, the, I'll give you the the basics. They said, I want to build a fence. And the person said, do you want to build a fence to keep people out? Or do you want to build a fence to keep people in? And it was meant to be a joke because, and the person just said, well, both, I guess, you know, both because they had kids. I want to keep the kids in, but I also don't want people just walking through kind of thing. If we can take that to heart and understand what God's hedge is in our life. How come I can't get over there and do that thing I want to do? It's outside the hedge. There's a gate. You could certainly go out. You're not here, held here against your will. But trust me, that's outside the hedge. That's outside of God's will for your life. I'm content. I'm content with the hedge God has placed in my life. I see what's happening. I see the fruit. I know where the gate is. I certainly know where the gate is in God's hedge in my life. I've walked by that gate. I've looked out the bars of that gate. I think we all have. Hmm. You know. I know better though. I'll put an extra padlock on it and I'll stay here. I'm not imprisoned. I'm blessed. This is a wonderful place to be. I look around and say, how could this be any better out there than it is right here where I am? within the presence of God, within his will in my life. And this is where the hedge is. David understands that. This is a wonderful place to be. Thank you for your hedge. Maybe sometimes that should be the prayer that we pray. Thank you for stopping me, not letting me. Oh God, I prayed and prayed and prayed for this to take place and I could go do that thing. And he's like, and I still said no. Now think that through. As your loving father who has a heavenly perspective, and I see you wanting to go out the gate and wanting to go over there, and I'm saying, no, that's not a good idea. I'm not going to let you. I'm not opening the gate. And you're over there throwing a pitch in a fit by the gate. You know, trust me. Will you trust me? 
don't go any further. The no's and the stops are just as important as the permission and the blessing to go, as far as I'm concerned. And David understands that. Okay, where was I? (laughs) Yeah, verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. In your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me. When as yet there were none of them, um, you knew me. You made me. We use this section of scripture for abortion, and it, it's appropriate. I mean, it does let us know why we're opposed to stopping a life in the midst of gestation, in the midst of God's rotting and building and making and creating. Then it's appropriate to use that. David knows, though, that he was made for the days that God had for him, too. The plans that God has for him, the paths that he wants him to walk on, all these things. And I would submit that abortion physically is not the only way we stop the work of God in our lives. We can abort God's plan throughout. I don't want to go too far onto this, but I've seen people abort marriages. I've seen them abort their children in the sense that they've stopped caring for them and loving them and training them and teaching them, stopped praying for them. I've seen people abort the work of God in their lives, submitted at one point, but now are no longer submitted, seeking self-gratification, self-exaltation, those kind of things. There's a lot of ways that we can thwart God's plan in our lives. The, the, the books you know, that were written about all the days that he has for me. Verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts towards me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And I quote those two verses in many different ways, not accurately most of the time. The thoughts towards me are as the sand of the sea, I say sometimes. Sometimes I say your thoughts are as precious as the sands of the sea. I never get it right. necessarily. I should probably spend more time memorizing the heart is there, right? The understanding is there. God thinks about us a lot. And when he thinks about us, they're precious thoughts. I don't care how you write that or how you say that. Know that in your heart. David is in awe of God's thoughts towards him, his love for him. It doesn't make sense. Like Of all the billions of people on this earth, I think I get... Every one billionth or one, every eight billionth second of yours, God. You know, when you, when you cross over my name on the list, you think of me kind of thing. No, it's constant. He has a mind where you are constantly on his mind. We have an easier job. I find myself unable to get away from the Lord. At the, at, right now in my life, I can't escape him. I'm always thinking about him. I... it's almost overwhelming sometimes to me. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm constantly thinking about God. 
which is great, right? I mean, that's the goal. <laughs> you know, Paul says you pray without ceasing and all that. And it's like, I can't sit down and have a different thought. I think about him all the time, you know? And I wonder why he's doing that. Why is he, I mean, it's, it's probably been that way for a long time. Why am I, why is it focusing on that now? Why am I, maybe it's for this verse. This is how I think about you. I don't have to divide my time between 8 billion people or all the people that have ever existed or that I've created. I think about them all the time. I'm thinking about you. And this isn't modern day Christianity, which I hear people get upset about all the time. Pastors are like, you know, it's not about you. It kind of is. This whole book is about us. It's about Jesus, but he's trying to tell us how much he thinks about us, how much he loves us. It is about us. He only wrote it for one person to read, you. He didn't need to hear it. He doesn't need to read it. It's for us. And I think that's the path to holiness, to be honest with you. I think everybody else's idea of it's not about you. We need to get back to hellfire and brimstone. And of course, we need to know that we're separated from God and that we've chosen this, just like the nation of Israel has walked into Babylon because they've isolated themselves from the Lord. Of course, you need to know that. But what brings them back from Babylon to God is the loving kindness of the Lord and his thoughts towards them are constant. And I appreciate that. I want you to leave with that understanding this morning. I don't think I'm in any danger of boosting someone into a prideful state with God with that statement, which is what others teach and think. You going away from this place and from God's word this morning, knowing what David was trying to commit to us, to show us in his psalm. Do you know that God thinks about you as often as the sands of the sea? Oh, you're just being fluffy, David. We need to stop thinking about ourselves, David. No, that's what he wants us to know. And this is written by the Holy Spirit. I want you to know that I think about you constantly. You are ever present on my mind. Your love with an everlasting love. Like a father loves his daughter or a son, like a mother loves his child. That's how I feel about you. You are never outside of my mind. That is a wonderful. And what does that cause you to do inside? Well, great, then I can go sin? That's not what comes to mind, is it? When you think about your mom and dad and how much they loved you, if they did, I hope they did, maybe they didn't. Think of someone else then that did. You recognize that God brought them into your life. Think about that person then. I know not everybody had the same childhood. When you think about that, does that draw you closer to them? Or does that make you think, good, well, I've got them in the bag. I know they love me, so I can forget them and go do what I want to do. And I know they'll always be there for me. That's not what happens, is it? You just want to call them. You want to write them a letter and thank them. Thank you, coach, for being that person in my life. Thank you, teacher, for being that person in my life. Thank you, mom. Thank you, dad. Thank you, grandma. Thank you, grandpa. Thank you, aunt, uncle. I can't name enough of them. Thank you for, thank you. It draws you close. David is so close right here, isn't he? Your your thoughts towards me, oh God, exclamation point. How great is the sum of them, exclamation point. Gee whiz, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. I don't know where he jumps to that. That's where he went in his worship. Get him. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. All he's doing is comparing. The people around me that don't love God have nothing to offer me compared to what God is offering me. You know? 
not that we're looking for self, but I don't even regard them compared to how I regard God. It's not even a competition. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them as my, as my enemies. And I do. I don't understand with what I know about Jesus why others don't love him like that. And I know that I'm not perfect and I have not attained. I'm not getting at that. I'm just saying it, it causes me to, well, they're not my brothers and sisters. They're not. I want them to be. I want them to be adopted into the family of God so that they too can understand how much God loves them. And so I do understand David and why he's saying what he's saying here. I do. But it causes me to understand who they are. It makes it very black and white to me. They are not a follower of Jesus. They don't love him like I do. They don't know how much he loves them. My job is to tell them, just like Jesus said, for God so loved the world, I'm telling you that now. Now what you do with that information is up to you. So my job is to still testify like God's word testifies about him. And if you hear all of that about the Lord, if you understand that about Scripture, if you understand God's hearts towards you and you still hate Him, then we're not going to, we're not allies. Search me, O God, and know, know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life. Not only does He talk about throughout the psalm how much God knows Him, He ends with God search me some more. Never satisfied with where he is as far as how much God knows him and how much he knows God. Now that I've discovered how much you love me and your thoughts towards me and all these things, and I've I've shared them with the world, search me again. Run another search. Look through my anxieties. Look through my worries and my concerns. If there's any wicked way in me, show it to me. I want to know and lead me in the way of everlasting. I want to know the right path. Lord, this morning we thank you for your love letter to us. As these authors of all these psalms understand one aspect or more of you, Lord, we desire to know those things too in our hearts, not just from today's teaching and it's gone into our ears, into our brain, but we want that understanding in our hearts because it moves us towards you. It moves us in your paths. It moves us to righteousness. It moves us to have that same love that you have for us, for others. It moves us. We thank you for this morning and your, your gentle but loving and clear word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good, well, hopefully see you out, out at the beach today.